and welcome back to Fully Equipped episode 149. And I am here with the robot man, Gene Parente and Chris McCormack from True Spec. How are you doing today, guys? Hanging Good. in there. How about I yourself? Doing all right. Obviously, uh, our, our, our fearless leader, Jonathan Wall, is not here this week, much like yourself from a couple weeks ago, Gene. He is on vacation, I would say, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, or someplace with very limited cell phone and internet reception, which uh, all credit to him. Uh, I think he deserves some time away. But uh, how's, every, how's everyone's week been so far? How did everyone enjoy the Open? I'm in Hawaii. I have zero complaints whatsoever. I've had a, uh, I've had a nice, long, extended stay. And uh, thanks to Truspec for deciding to open a location here on Oahu. Uh, I am loving this. I could do this every day. Are you ever coming back? I don't know. I really don't know. I I don't want to. If I if I have a choice about it, I think I just might change my address and, and call it good. At least until uh, at least until summer in Scottsdale's over. I might come yeah. back in uh, November. Smart move. Well, you know the whole desert thing. Being growing up in Palm Springs, it's like, and having lived in San Diego for thirty two years, the desert is all about. Halloween to Memorial Day. That's it. If you can 100%. bug out the rest of the time, you're 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 good to go. I've heard Brother, that you I'm... are not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> up up where I am near Toronto, uh, you know, I deal with all four seasons. Uh, it is very hot right now, like it is a lot of places in the world. Uh, but I, I heard everyone everyone who can goes up to Flagstaff, where it's a little bit more reasonable in the summer. Is that uh, is that kind of the, the mo for a lot of people? They, yeah, Flagstaff and then also up to uh, like Torreon and up into the Northern Territory. They get the heck out of the valley. That is exactly what we uh, Phoenicians try and do the majority of the summer. Oh, yeah, nice. there's this there's this other place called Canada that they have a tendency of going to that they duck out. It's, it's somewhere north. I'm not quite sure, but... They're like uh, migratory birds. They leave right around the uh, end of May and show up again in November. So, well, that's, I, I that's you, our I snowbirds. May, <laughs> I may have found a. Uh, I may have found a new summer spot here. This is. Uh, I mean, this is our. If you can see behind me at all, this is this is the office view here, and uh, pretty spectacular. And I'm then I'm when you two five minutes away from an ocean. When you tuned in there, Chris, I was thinking to myself, you know, that looks a little too green to be Scottsdale right now, considering yeah, the time yeah, of year. It's, it's definitely, it's, Scottsdale's never this green, ever. Yeah. There is so much green here. And uh, like I said, the entire time I've been here, it's just been mid 80s with a nice breeze and then mid 70s at night. And it just never changes. It's phenomenal. Well, that, that actually leads into our, our first subject of the day, and that is a uh, nice transition there, Chris. I appreciate that. Is the, sure, sure. Is, Just teeing you up. All right. Thank you. As Is golf ball fitting and specifically talking about peak height and how that relates to not only club fitting, but matching where you play? You know, people who – I have a friend who, who recently went from Scottsdale area down to Florida, and the first thing he texted me within a week was – I didn't realize how much wind is here. I have to completely change the way I play golf. And you know, is that something when you no know, Gene, first of all, to you, when it came to the robot testing that we did, and you can people can find this article on uh, we did the top three and lowest three flying uh, golf balls for peak height for two different swing speeds. You can find it at golf.com. But Gene, were you surprised to see the testing results that we saw when when putting the golf balls on the robot? I say we, but you were the one who did all the testing. Well, not, not really. And, you know, it's really interesting because it's something that I don't think a lot of players think about. What's really fascinating about golf ball testing is you have uh, initial launch condition testing and then you have um, aerodynamic testing. And sometimes you can get very similar initial launch conditions, but then you get different aerodynamics as, as the ball flies. And what's What's really interesting about it um, is there's two things that you're looking for. Let's start with the driver. You're looking for peak height, but then you're also looking for descent angle. And generally speaking, you know, depending on the type of player, depending on the spin rate, you, you, you want to maximize 
this is what I tell players that don't have launch monitors is you want more of a parabolic flight with the driver so that the, the, the beginning arc looks similar to the ending arc. And when you reach a peak, the ball doesn't flare and it doesn't drop off. And generally, if you have that, you will have probably the greatest opportunity to maximize both carry and total roll. And ideally, you want a flatter descent angle, which will maximize total roll. But then what's really interesting, which you know we're going to get into later as we mine this data, is it all changes with the irons. Now with the irons, and especially better player irons, you want the ball to have a lower launch, higher spin, rise at the end, and have a steep descent angle. And the main reasons for those are you want the ball to cut through the wind and not be susceptible to the wind by a higher launch, which can achieve the same launch angle, and then a steep descent angle to drop. So what's really fascinating about golf balls is, you know, we're going to start by examining the driver. But when you look at the totality of the performance of a golf ball, driver, five iron, eight iron, wedge, half wedge, that's when you start seeing all of these different kind of components of performance characteristics, launch, spin, and there are ranges of those, but also peak trajectory, descent angle, and then carry in total roll. So that was an incredibly long-winded explanation for a very short question. No, but I, I think it does serve a purpose to those who are listening to understand what's going to, like what they should be looking for, right? Because in a lot of cases, a lot of golfers don't really understand the idea of, you know, maximizing performance from the driver through like their wedges, right? Like they always say, if you ever go watch the, the tour players play, they won't believe how high they hit their driver and how low they hit their wedges, right? Yeah. And as far as conditions are concerned, Chris, is that something where when you're fitting players and you're, and you're like talking to fitters, considering the golf ball as part of the process, because not only does Truesbeck have indoor, but also outdoor facilities to really see that variance? No, hundred percent. It's, it's part of the conversation during the interview process where we make a determination. Number one, where does the player play the majority of their golf? Uh, number two, what type of launch window do they characteristically like to see? And then there's also a conversation whether or not that preferred launch window is appropriate for what it is they're trying to accomplish. So everybody has this interpretation that they hit the ball higher than they actually do. So you were making a comment about how high a tour player will hit their driver. And you'll see apex heights you know, from 110 to 140 feet on some cases, depending upon conditions. And, you know, your average amateur player, 80 feet is a pretty high tee shot. So having an opportunity to get that apex height up and still maintain the appropriate landing angle, golf ball definitely helps. So there's, there's always that conversation. And in an indoor environment with TrueSpec, we try to test with the ball that the player uses. And then that also gives us an opportunity to have that golf ball conversation if we need more spin, less spin, or potentially something in a, a different compression range that's appropriate for that player. Yeah, I mean, well, go well, ahead. I was gonna, no worries. I was going to say, uh, Chris brings up an interesting point, and it's strictly a function of velocity. In other words, we can launch at the robot a 12-degree launch at 60 miles an hour versus a 12 degree launch at 125 miles per hour. And the peak height difference is just mind bogglingly different. And you can launch with very similar spin rates as well, but you're just not generating the velocity to get the lift. And, um, you know, what he was talking about is windows is really fascinating because you talk to tour players and all they talk about is windows, but they know their window and they know that once the ball reaches this window with this club, for the most part, they're going to have this type of descent angle and this type of carry. And so they've kind of ingrained that, but to transfer that to an amateur can be a challenge because they might just simply not understand what that window means or what its net effects are. And even though they're used to it, um, it might not necessarily be optimized, you know, for where they're at. So, you know, once again, as always, you know, shilling for true spec, go get fit, you know, let, let the experts uh, give you guidance because what you think, you know, might not necessarily be the most beneficial thing for your game. 
And it, it comes down as That's- well to the idea of like using the same golf ball, right? And like, again, we talk about premium golf balls offering premium performance, but for any level of golfer, regardless of if you're using a Kirkland ball or, you know, something else from an, another OEM or Pro V1 or Bridgestone, uh, Tour B or Callaway, whatever it happens to be, right? Use the same ball is going to offer that consistency when you see ball flight and also when you see carry distance. Because, you know, if, how many times someone walk into their golf bag and just go, oh, I don't know, whatever, whatever's waiting around today, they pull out. And I'm like, you, know, you are going to wonder why you're going to be short, maybe a couple of yards on a shot, because, you know, we've, we saw variants about six, seven, eight yards in some cases, depending on, on ball sp- or club head speed in the testing. And then from there, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was doing a little bit of side research to this point is um, I believe it's called wind gradient. And we saw stuff from this, from the players championship this past year, where there was this amazing graphic of showing the players that hit the green, hitting this lower shot players that missed the green, trying to hit their normal stock trajectory and what the wind did to the ball flight. And as you go higher, the wind gets stronger, right? Everyone, you know, you ever hear bones talk about him and Phil at 16 at Augusta and all the little calculations that they're doing there. It's, it's not, it is really comes down to rock size. You make a really good point. The faster something goes, like a jet doesn't have very big wings, but it's traveling extremely fast. A glider is much lighter and has these enormous wings, and it can kind of float and just you know flutter along and keep that same angle. But the velocities are two completely different things. Well, and and I would add to that, you know, one of the points that I don't think a lot of golfers really grasp, and I hear this all the time, is oh you know, I shouldn't play a tour grade urethane golf ball because I'm not good enough. And it's not like the ball does something exceptional, you know, if you're super good versus super bad. It's what what urethane golf balls do more than anything else is from about a seven to a pitching, you know, to a 60 degree lob wedge, they will give you more spin, more spin consistency and a lower launch angle than a Serlin uh, golf ball. And regardless of your skill level, if you hit those shots, i.e. a seven uh, iron through a six-degree lob wedge, that that ball is going to give you more consistency. doesn't matter if you suck or not. The one shot you hit well, it's going to perform well. So if you can afford it, buy urethane golf balls because they, they provide benefits for the entire range of handicaps, not just better players. Um, and that's something that I think now, you know, if you're like, Hey, I'm so bad that it's just got to be white and have dimples on it. Cause you know, I'm that inconsistent. Then, you know, absolutely go with more of a price point based golf ball. But if you, you know, if you've invested in a thousand dollar set of irons or $500 driver and, and you're a 16, 17, 18 handicap, and you don't feel like it justifies the golf ball, my argument is play the golf ball as well because that will give you, you know, when you do hit that one good wedge shot, it's going to hold on the green. It's not going to release and, you know, roll to the back. That's a very good point. Now, now speaking of, of wedges, this is, I think, Chris, this is right up your alley, is uh, this past week we saw the release of the Titleist Vokey indoor wedge fitting app. And, you know, I think this is, it's a really cool tool for fitters that might not be as experienced working with, with golfers indoors in a fitting setting. And obviously it's very particular to uh, Titleist Vokey wedges and, and their matrix of, of brines. But Chris, how do you go through the process of fitting wedges indoors? Because I know I've seen talking bounce and turf conditions again. Is this an interview thing? Because I think, again, for a lot of golfers, this is going to be helpful when they go talk to a fitter that might not have that experience, get those recommendations. Cause this is a fitter focused product. This is not something that I believe is going to be uh, consumer facing, but when he does come to the indoor wedge fitting, how does that process work for you guys? So indoor wedge fitting is, is always going to rely on a lot of conversational components. So having an opportunity to interview the player and identify how it is that they use their wedges, what it is that they struggle with, the types of shots that they like to play and then identifying how it is that they deliver the wedge through impact. So is it somebody that takes more of a full swing? Is it somebody that's leaning left, kind of dragging the handle with a lot of forward shaft lean, somebody that introduces the leading edge or effectively uses the bounce? 
you know, the types of shots that that player is trying to hit. How do they use camera? Do they even understand what it is or how it is that they're doing? So there's a lot of different things that go into identifying what type of grind and or bounce that that player particularly should be using. So I rely heavily on just years of experience watching release pattern and watching how it is that they use their hands and how it is that they come through impact. Uh, but for a newer fitter or somebody, like you said, that may not have an opportunity to have had you know, however many fittings I've done over the course of my career, uh, I mean, the, the the software that they're coming out with and the the wedge fitting applications is hugely useful. So it's definitely something that is kind of becoming more and more popular with the OEMs and uh, Titleist is is definitely an industry leader when it comes to their wedge fitting philosophy. So I'm I'm really anxious to uh, to, to test it a little bit more and and see how it comes uh, to the recommendations compared to what I find. The uh, the one thing that they um, they they said and, and you know I think it's, I think it's interesting is it's it's uh, taking data that's inputted by the fitter from the like from a launch monitor, talking uh, dynamic loft, talking shaft angle delivery, talking uh, like attack angle, and all those different elements kind of put together. Uh, but I will credit to uh, I believe it was Cleveland back in the day. They had a, a wedge fitting app that used something called Swing Bite, which I don't remember who the exact manufacturer was uh, of that, but I do know that it was a, a device that clipped onto the shaft and it actually gave a 3d representation of swing path. And then from there it showed dynamic, uh, delivery, like how not, it didn't obviously track the golf ball. It always just attached to the golf club, but it would show shaft lean. And from there it would offer bounce recommendations as well, which I thought was really cool. It never caught on uh, too much inside of the, uh, the golf space outside of, you know, some fitters that might've had this at the time, but, it's amazing how far we've come when it comes to even launch monitor data to be able to interpret this inside because, you know, at the end of the day, the whole goal is to really just fit someone better, right? No, absolutely. It's whatever it is that the player shows up with uh, trying to exceed and benefit from a fitting, giving them more performance, checking that box of, and has to look good, sound good, feel good. And then numerically for the fitter has to make the most sense. So have it has you, to check the box on both sides. Now, have you ever um, used, when we talk about like a player's like current equipment, been able to look at a player's wedge and see the wear and see, you know, we've seen some players where like they've literally worn through the chrome on the bottom of the, of the wedge, either towards the heel or the toe or the front or the back and see where it's worn out on the face. Can you take that information and almost not quite instantly, but pretty quickly come to a conclusion of, okay, this is probably what they're dealing with in most cases. This is the club that they're using for this shot particularly to, to interpret that and say, you know, this is a good way to look at it. Cause I think a lot of golfers, if they have wedges that are a few years old, they're going to be able to see wear patterns and say, this is probably something I should be looking at to hopefully help my wedge game out. Oh, absolutely. And that's a uh, kind of looking behind the curtain there per se. That's uh, that's something that I'll, I'll do to, it not only entertain, but also establish a little bit of credibility when it comes to having that conversation with the player, being able to tell them a story about their wedge game before I ever see them hit a shot and looking at wear pattern, strike location, what's going on with the sole of the wedge and where that wear pattern is. Uh, what does the wear pattern towards the leading edge look like towards their trailing edge down towards the heel or the toe? And then being able to go, oh, you you hit this shot a lot, don't you? Oh, you you kind of miss with this. You struggle with this. You're probably really good at this. And then they just, oh, wow, yeah, how did you know that? And being able to tell them a story about their wedge game just by looking at wear patterns on their wedge. I got a, I got a question for you on that one, Chris. Do you see uh, like a consistent wedge pattern if someone's toe up and they're in their heel dragging or toe down? Will you see that? Kind, can you look and see a mark? like that or is that not usually as apparent no absolutely and i mean if the wedge is old enough if they they've used it long enough you'll see a consistent wear pattern for strike location uh leading edge uh, through the sole uh even on the trailing edge if it's somebody that let's just say is, is kind of a flipper very handsy uh very mm -hmm. fast release through impact you'll see uh, usually the 
the center of the sole and towards the trailing edge, starting to wear even more than the, than the leading edge and gives us an opportunity to, to make a recommendation or talk about bounce, talk about grind. And, you know, you can, like I said, start to tell that story to them about areas of their wedge play that they may excel or struggle with. Gotcha. I always think that the, uh, the fun one is the, uh, the lie and it's a hill that it's a hill that I I will I will swear that I'm going to die on when it comes to wedges is is playing them flatter in the in this in the say the sand and the lob wedge is seeing players that just have consistent strikes on the to, from center to heel on their wedges seeing where on the bottom part of their wedges you know the 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 toe of the wedge looks completely no I wouldn't say new but it looks almost untouched and then from that other side and you're like do you find that you pull your wedges a lot and they're like oh yeah it's, I I do. It's like, yeah, because you've never adjusted your wedges in the, I don't know, however old they are, right? And I'm sure it's probably something that's easy to identify, you know, in someplace like Scottsdale or in the desert where the soil is a little bit more sandy. It's easy to say like, wow, you need to, you know, you really need to adjust this quickly because someone's going to see a benefit almost instantaneous when they just change something as quick as a lie angle. So I have, I have my narrative that I tell people when I make that recommendation to go a little bit flatter in wedges. Uh, What's the explanation that that you give to the player as to, yeah, I know you play an upright lie throughout the majority of your set, but wedges are going to be a little different. How do you, how do you kind of explain that to them? I have two uh, kind of ways that I look at it. One is when you open the face of the wedge, you're utilizing a different part of the sole. You're going to open up more of those higher lofted wedges. So it's actually more advantageous to have a flatter lie angle when it comes to opening up the face, because with doing that, you're almost naturally going to lower the hands. So when you have lower hands, you need a flatter lie angle, or in some cases, like myself, I play wedges that are uh, progressively sh- more shorter than standard into the, into the say lob wedge. So my lob wedge is half an inch short of say a, a standard lob wedge at 34 and a half inches, but then it jumps to a quarter inch. It jumps uh, three eighths of an inch into the next wedge. Cause I build my own golf club so I can get really detailed and nerdy and it doesn't bother me at all. Cause I do it all my, myself. And also when it comes to less speed, you see less shaft deflection. So you're not getting that toe down effect from the shaft as much. So as you get into the lower speeds, not only do you need to be flatter, but you also need to, um, well, be slower speeds because of shaft deflection and also hand positioning to impact. Hundred percent. I like to also include into that the uh, the benefits of flatter and introducing a different part of the face coming through impact can also increase spin, and you'll also be able to benefit from a little flatter lie angle because the body doesn't have an opportunity to go into extension and ulnar deviation with the hands quite as much. To your point, it's a slower, more deliberate swing when hitting those chips and pitches. So the hand position, like you said remains a little bit lower than what happens through a full swing. So you can manipulate lie angle and you know, kind of customize that lie angle with wedge a little bit more you know, catered to that particular player with the wedges, so, which is kind of nice. Now, I guess, and this, this comes actually a conversation I had with somebody on Instagram and a question I get uh, when I do, I'll do like Q&A questions on my Instagram usually once a week. And someone asked, um, have you ever seen a player use the same lie angle throughout their set, not for single length, but for a, a variable length set where someone has a, a fairly consistent lie angle from top to bottom? I do also happen to fit more into this category, but is that something that you see or recommend that often in, in fittings? Do I recommend it often? No. Have I seen it? I've seen it a few times. Oh, I've. There was actually a, a Canadian tour player that... I mean, his stuff was three plus degrees upright of what that OEM standard was. And he maintained that same lie angle. We fit, uh, obviously, I have a six iron uh, true spec. So I kind of go upright or flat based upon that, that six iron. But I mean, we found that 65 degrees was the perfect lie angle for him for that particular six iron. And then he comes back to see me a few months after he got the clubs and he bent the lie angle on everything to between 64 and 65 degrees. And I'm going, what the hell happened? And then I'm watching him hit him and I'm going, oh, well, okay, you might be onto something here and just absolutely flushed it. And I've seen a couple of people that have done that. It's unique, so, not something so that he, I would recommend. So he, 
So they're adjusting their swing dynamically to deliver that club head in the same position as a step. That's wild. I mean, that's right. I, what's what's wild about that is, I mean, obviously this. I'm guessing, you know, this this guy's got some pretty good hand-eye coordination and got it figured out because the reality is most people have no idea. It, you know, they they're just seeing cause and effect, right? So in that scenario. All of a sudden, everything's starting to go, you know, further left, further left, and they're like, "Huh, I'm I'm hooking my shorter irons, or you know, whatever," because you know they're so upright. But this player's adjusting it dynamically. Yeah, that's that's pretty whacked. Buddy, you want to see something really crazy? Look at a 65 degree lie angle on a three iron. Oh God! Wow. <laughs> That that scares me to death because wow. I'll tell you right now, mine's what, like fifty nine. What, 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 what are you doing? You're holding your hands out like a pendulum and swinging that. Thing? That's I mean, exact. That's... He was. He could have swung that three iron inside of a doorway. He was so close <laughs> to the ball and so upright. Like blew me away watching that motion. But man, he striped it. Wasn't well, that Scott hey. Hoke? Scott Hoke was like that. Wasn't he like extremely upright? I don't, I can only remember him as a kid, like being closer towards the end of his career, but like he was like straight up, straight down. And I remember talking to somebody, he had some of the most upright line goals on tour. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were stress marks in the, in the hosels from, from those bends. That's like, Yeah. I, that from a fitting perspective and I mean, even a coaching perspective, I wouldn't bend a golf club there, but he did it himself. So I mean, more power to him. But there were there were definitely stress marks on the uh, on the hosel of those golf clubs from leaning on them to get them to those upright lie angles, especially in those long irons. That's uh, that's a little outside of the box. Kids, don't try this at home. Let's just put exactly. that exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's it's interesting that it was so upright because I'm I'm almost the opposite where I want to see like. I would say my long irons would be what most OEMs would consider standard, but from there my irons get progressively flatter into the wedges because I have a hard time drawing my long irons, but it's I find it sometimes I'll pull my short irons. So there's this progressive flattening out there, which to see someone be that upright, I couldn't imagine what a even like a a 63 degree pitching or 63 degree line angle pitching wedge freaks me out. So to see really? something, to see something at 65, even looking at particular irons that might uh, be perceived as more upright just because of their look from a dress. I put irons down. I'm like, Oh, this doesn't look right. And I'll throw it in the live off machine, get the, get everything lined up. And I'm like, Oh, it's like 61. I'm like, well, it still looks weird. So I'm going to bend it flatter just so it looks right. And then, <laughs> just, and so then take it right. Out, just so it looks right and take it out to the golf course and at least fine tune it from there relative to ball fight, which I think really is when it comes down to it is the most important thing, right? We can look at numbers all day, but if someone's seeing the, the ball fight they want to see, then it really doesn't matter. That brings up another interesting point. I've also had tour players that, so I mean, just for just for a reference point, majority out there, as you go through a transition set or a variable length set, lie angle will differ typically about a half degree between each club. Uh, as you get into the long irons, again, just for reference, sometimes you'll have a degree of variance. But I mean, I've had competitive players on the PGA Tour that, to your point, will have me adjust lie angle specifically to give them the right shot shape, the right impact position on the face and the turf interaction that they want to see with that particular golf club. And we might have two or three clubs in the set and they don't want to know what the lie angle is. They'll just tell me it needs to go flatter, needs to go flatter. Nope. Needs to go more upright, needs to go more upright. So we may have two or three of the same lie angle overlap in the set, but we might have three or four different lie angles throughout the progressive set. And I've had players that, you know, let's just say hypothetically six iron in relationship to standard is two degrees flat, but then five iron might be standard or might be a degree upright based upon how they deliver it, their turf interaction, impact position and start line. So it's, it's interesting how players come to the conclusion of where they play their line for sure. This is where I, you know, I, I have the same one I've been using since I was, I, I always make the joke that I'm probably the only, I think I was 16 or 17 at the time, the only kid that ever wanted a lie loft machine for his birthday. And I got it and I still own it. And there's a reason I own it is because I like doing that tweaking. It's something that I was always very particular about. And you no, know, sure. where I live now is, is pretty close to where I grew up as a kid. And 
to go to a golf store was an hour away. The nearest line loft machine was an hour away. So it was a lot easier to just buy one of these things, get it in my house. And then if I wanted to go through the process being an absolute golf degenerate, to be able to go through that process, it's a lot easier when it's at my house than it is to, you know, drive that hour and be like, oh, I'm really not sure. I want to tweak it. I want to do this. It's like, no, no, I'll bring it home and I'll go back to the range again in a couple hours and see what it's like. But, you know, that's when you have a lot of time and you didn't have to worry about kids when you're a teenager. But uh, thankfully, did my parents. You, were- did you say 16 or 17 years old? You wanted a loft and lie gauge? Did I get that right? I'm just, I, I'm just I, checking on that one. I For my 16th birthday, I wanted a lie loft machine. And I got it. And uh, lucky for me, uh, my dad was uh, is like it was a machinist. He's retired, uh, so like he knows his way around uh, like welding and all kinds of stuff like that. So he, but I still have it to this day. I built a. It's it's on a custom stand. So you see some of those like, I guess three or four inch round tube that you see the yep. lie loft machines on. Mine's on four inch square tubing and a an inch almost an inch thick uh, plate of steel. And it was, it was at the time bolted into the, the garage of my, my parents, uh, floor of my parents' garage, sorry, um, to give you any idea of like just how sick I was as a child. And I guess that's, you know, part of the reason why I'm here today. I, I was going to say your career path was pretty much chosen for you at the age of 16. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely that's, love it. That re- that's really impressive. I don't even think I knew what loft was until I was about 24, 25 and started in this. So that is, uh, that's hardcore. I, I tip my hat to you on I, that one. I feel like, uh, you know, I just wasted a bunch of time with college and going to work and finance <laughs> after school. <laughs> well, yes, let me tell, let me tell you. Let me tell you. industry. If this is if this was going to be a conversation about the many jobs that I've had to get to this point in and out of golf, then uh, we're <laughs> going to need a, a lot of time because everything from from nonprofit to demo days to to craft beer and a lot of other things in between. Let me tell you, there's a there's a there's a big long list out there of, of things that I've done in the past. But you know, golf has always been as as you know as a kid, literally um, having that thing and, and being able to even just like learn how to regrip golf clubs. That's where it came from, and so. Uh, yeah, there's the, the golf sicko is, is in me and it's been in me for, for a long period of time. Um, Love it. But that, so that, you know, brings me to another, uh, another point of talking about not, not just line goal, but you know, some of the things that we've seen in the past. And again, I have this come up because of social media. And one of the things I was looking up recently was talking about the use of, of different materials in putter. So we've, ta- we've seen things like, uh, I did a, a, I recently wrote a piece for like different kind of like funky golf clubs that, that some players were using to win the open championship, for example, and using multi-material in, in fairy, like things like fairy woods, you see, uh, tungsten and, and steel sole plates very prevalent now in a lot of different models and things like that. But from your careers in the golf shoe, what would be like the most obscure golf club that stands out to you where if you see it, you're like, Oh wow, that was actually really good at the time. But at this point, you know, maybe a decade, more than a decade later, it has completely evolved into obscurity. Because there's, is there something you can think of? Because there's a couple in the top of my head, but I, I got to ask you guys off the, like, what do you guys, if there's something that jumps out of you? Any, any golf club? Anything. Putters, wedges, irons, a driver by any chance. If there's something that. Sumo, the sumo driver. The sumo, uh, it is the sumo. The sumo. You know, it's interesting. I was just talking about that today with my clients, high MOI drivers, and how those were really fascinating because uh, on a robot, those things were rock stars because once you squared the head, you could hit off center and the high MOI really minimize twisting, side spin, drop off in distance. The problem was that same resistance to twisting at, at impact resisted twisting in the delivery of the club head and the club head came through wide open and players couldn't square it. So it didn't matter what it did on offset or hits if you were flaring the ball right, but great concept from an impact position. And also to be perfectly honest, that's one where it was a great concept tested great on the robot, but did not translate to players because the robot, you could adjust it to square it, but uh, you couldn't, couldn't do the same thing with players that high MOI, they had a really difficult time getting the increased closure necessary to to hit that straight. 
I wasn't even going to mention one of those square golf clubs, but I had a friend who had the square driver and had the exact problem you just mentioned there, Gene. Uh, mm-hmm. He, I don't think he, he closed the club face once on that thing in the in the two weeks that he owned it. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> and it, yeah. So it didn't last very long, but he did have, I believe it was the first generation square hybrid. It was a he had the three, and I think I believe he had the four, and those things stayed in his bag for years years and years like because they just they just wanted to go high and they wanted to go straight and yep. because of the the shorter like heel to toe distance they offered that i don't want to call it workability because it was still a square golf club but they just wanted to go straight which i thought was fa- quite fascinating that driver wouldn't work but when you put it into a, a square golf club that was smaller it actually was quite effective yeah uh, that I mean, is uh Go ahead, Gina. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I was just no, I was just gonna say I, I had another one that was really wild. So uh kind of like I don't know. I what did what did I say that disgusted you guys a few weeks back? Something that uh that was in my bag or something. Well, this one this one's gonna be an equally as embarrassing cell phone story showing how much of a moron I am. Um so <laughs> nineteen ninety-two. I'm out testing at the polo fields. Let me think. I'm 25, 26 years old. And Dick Helmstetter, the VP of R&D, pulls up because he used to come out for Callaway, pulls up in his BMW, and we'd been testing. And he goes, come here. I want to show you something. I said, all right. I come walking back. He pops open his trunk, and he pulls it out, and he goes, we're going to call this the Big Bertha. And I looked at it. And my 26-year-old, and I was like, gimmicky name, ho- hokey product. I give it six months. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I, was, I literally was one of the first people, other than a few people in the company, to test it, robot test it, et cetera. And in all fairness, at the same time that that was coming out, I was doing testing for another company called Slotline, and they had a really kind of good run on putters in the 90s. And this guy, Duke Duclos, who owns Slotline, fascinating guy. He was a professional gambler, and sometimes he wouldn't be able to make payroll. So he'd fly to Vegas and spend 48 hours playing cards and win enough money to come back and make payroll. Anyways, wow. he had this. He, oh, he was awesome. But he had the success with a uh, slot line putter. So he decided he was going to make a driver and it was going to have a plastic back. It, 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 it was a, a steel face at the time because, you know, this was pre titanium. Um, but then he put internal weights in it. And he was testing with me for about a year before Callaway introduced it. And he kept working on it, working on it. Anyways, the bottom line is this club went further than the Big Bertha. It had better off-center hits. It, it, from a performance standpoint, it outperformed the Big Bertha. It got swamped by the marketing tsunami that was the Callaway Big Bertha. Slotline was out of the driver business in six months. The whole company was closed down in a year. We know the story of Callaway. The point being that I learned a couple very valuable lessons in that, yes, the Big Bertha was different. It was innovative, but there were other products. There were all carbon heads coming out of Japan at the same time that had really good performance characteristics. They all got lost in the noise of a great marketing campaign. And um, so sometimes you can uh, get products that are amazing from a performance standpoint but if the marketing story is not told effectively it doesn't matter they'll they'll be yesterday's news very quickly yep that's unfortunate too and there's there's been some some good products that come out that uh just don't get any traction and that's just because like you said gene the the marketing dollar behind them you know they don't tell the story appropriately or they tell the wrong story and they kind of paint this persona about what this product is or what it does. And people just never try it. No interest. Yep. Yep. Now, now before I I give my answers, Chris, and I know you mentioned traction there. That's a traction is a great point because we are talking about the golf pride CPX grip, the newest performance and golf pride's softest grip 
they have ever produced when it comes to a single one-piece material. And, you know, talking about traction, the CPX features an exo diamond quilted pattern, which helps reduce vibration while also making sure that your hands have traction and control over your golf clubs. It's a soft grip for a hard game. Now, a big thing about this as well is because of the soft material, not only does it help reduce vibration, the, redu the vibration reduction also helps you play longer, give you less discomfort when you are hitting shots, allows you to practice longer, and in many ways can help prevent injury because there's nothing worse than if you are trying to hit golf balls, you know, your hands start to hurt, they get fatigued, they get tired. And with the CPX, because of its, its soft nature, allows you to do that and gives you the opportunity to practice longer, play better, and you know, hopefully improve your golf game. Now, if you're curious about the all-new Golf Pride CPX grip, you can head to your local Golf Pride retailer, or you can head to golfpride.com to find out more information. Yeah, that yeah. was a hell of a transition. Well, that, that you was know, good. I, I that got, was good. I got I to tell you, Ryan, your transitions are much better than Jay Walls. I'm just going to say, man, you just, 100%. man, you really nailed that. Jay Walls got to start working on his transitions, man. I'm just saying. He does. He does. You, you picked, I, that was you picked good. your points. Well so played, I, when well one of you guys played. says a word, and then I'm like, okay, that's going to work. I might just transition. <laughs> <laughs> I get into it. Um, one Did you ever have a job as a pitch man? I never, I've worked, my, my, uh, my educational background is in uh, marketing and business. So, and with that in mind, I also used to have to give, you know, talking down the career path very quickly. Uh, <laughs> I used to work at a craft brewery. And when I started working there, uh, I just started working there part-time. I had a full-time business in the golf, like full-time career in the golf business, but I had fun doing it on weekends. I used to give tours around a brewery. And let nice. me tell you, Giving a tour around a brewery to 15 to 20 people who had a number of beverages in them uh, during the course of the afternoon before you take them on onto a, around a brewery floor, uh, which is which can be a little bit loud. You have to command their attention and you have to make sure that you get to your point as quickly as possible, make it entertaining, and uh, hopefully teach them something along the way. So that's probably where the uh, where that comes from. But uh, well played. As far as it. as far as products are concerned, one of the things that always stands out to me. And, you know, every time I, I mean, ping, if you look in Google jazz ping putters, there is the original line, which is titanium and tungsten. It was a very high end putter design. Uh, I think they were like four or five ninety nine, And we're talking late nineties. So that was a lot of money for a product. The, the TI, the TISI tech, which was another product from ping, which had a very unique hosel, but a product from a company that doesn't exist anymore yet. You can find a lot of really funky, the dock putter from ping is another one that kind of stands out for me. There's again, ping has a lot of putters that, you know, they, they threw yes. stuff at the wall and I think, you know, down the line, it produces <clears throat> some other really good stuff. But uh, at the time it was, you know, very, very uh, interesting. Let's put it that way. But the one thing that always stands out to me, and I think it leads into products that we see today, which is the P790. And I know there were products that before, even before this came out that kind of fit into this category, but the, the what was it called the the Nikent Gen X series blades, which had yeah. a, an internal muscle goo or a polymer inside the back of them that reduced vibration and increased MOI and increased forgiveness and increased feel. If you look back at it, you can I don't know how hard it is or how easy it is to find the stuff on the internet because I knew it wasn't when I was trying to find a picture of it. But Bubba Watson used one of their wedges for a long period of time as a ping staffer. Because they used to paint those little dots in the back of that in a Kent wedge with a, with pink uh, that kind of fit his motif. But I look back at that and you see them pop up online once in a while. I'm like, man, those looked good. They felt really good. Uh, they had a milled face on them, so they look they look like a premium product. But when Nikent went out of business, I was working big box retail. I still kick my I kick myself for a lot of different golf clubs I should have bought. But these things were on the wall for like three ninety nine. It's probably a, a nine hundred almost thousand dollar set of irons when they first came out. But when Nikent went under, they big box retailers swooped in, bought out all their inventory for next to nothing. And I saw those things again on the wall for $400. And looking back, like that led to a lot of different innovation, I think in like clubs that looked like a blade, but aren't, which we see all the time now. But back then that was pretty revolutionary. And I know again, before that, there was probably some products that did fit into that category, but they, they never really took off when it comes to, like what they offer to performance to the golfer. Uh, Nikent was a good company. 
and they uh they made some great hybrids the irons were solid i remember those wedges they had some really good stuff i know i'd mentioned uh sonar tech on the pod before like sonar tech had some good stuff their fairways and hybrids were great <clears throat> there was i think yeah. so uh, was it gene you probably know more than the history of this play john hoflich oh yeah who, john hoflich john hoflich was uh if memory serves me responsible for the tommy armor is it 845s what's the classic yeah. tommy armor that yep. was his yep. that was his kind of baby and then he went to titleist and designed some irons at titleist no hopelich is is you know a legend in the industry from a design standpoint and i used to mccant and sonar tech were both clients of mine back in the day speaking of square drivers do you remember the mccant square driver g I do not remember that. I remember the Sumo. I remember the Callaway. I can't. I was trying to think today. I can't remember if TaylorMade came out with one or not, but um, I definitely remember those two. I don't think a- they did Square. I think the most obscure thing that they did was that CGV driver. Mm, yeah, was, I think yeah. you're probably right. Yeah, because that had I remember when that came out, it was like uh, I think it was a thousand. So Canadian, it was a thousand dollars. It came with three shafts. It had this yep. looked like a looked like a gun box. <laughs> You'd like this huge yep. thing, um, redhead. It was insane. Like it was it was a pretty crazy product, and um, it was a pretty drastic triangular shape too. Very much so. You know, yeah, I do remember that. Yep. It was thing was red. Now another one that's triangular that I think uh, I think Titleist would probably want to forget because it's not even on their historic. <laughs> it's not, it's not even on their historic. If you go to their club archive, you will not find this. Now I haven't looked this up today, but I've looked this up a number of times. The nine hundred seven D one does not exist on Titleist historical golf website. I mean the nine hundred seven D four, which was like tour only product, uh, doesn't yeah. exist either. But the D one was a product that was released to retail. It sounded funky. Oh, yeah. It was triangle, but it, I think Titleist wished that club never existed because you cannot find yeah. it on their website, but well, I'll tell you another probably, one you're never going to uh, find is the starship, the Titleist starship. <laughs> you want to go back. I mean, you know, <laughs> Titleist, Titleist is a really interesting company in that I would say they, you know, and I don't know, I'm sure someone's going to call in, yell at me for this. And they're probably valid in doing so. But I'm going to say, like, they haven't even been kind of relevant, you know, for uh, for golf equipment, in maybe going back 15, maybe 20 years max. Before that, they were almost a sideshow in comparison to, you know, like, I would talk to the golf club guys and basically the golf ball guys back in Massachusetts said, don't kill the golden goose. It's the golf ball. Like just don't do anything that, you know, detracts from the golf ball and we'll let you guys sit out here in Carlsbad and do whatever the hell you want. Don't kill the golden goose. And then it was, I don't know, like I said, 15, 20 years ago, I can't remember yesterday. So I remember it specifically, but, uh, they started transitioning and they started taking more energy and putting it into golf equipment. And suddenly they became a better players club and, and, and they started really developing and defining their brand. Um, and the interesting thing was, you know, going back and discussing these clubs, which was amazing because they were always better players clubs, but they were always spinning. All their drivers were spinning. Yeah. They would always spin five, six hundred RPM more than anything else. And I never understood that. Like, you know, why better players who usually swing faster would want a would want a club that the ball would balloon on them a little bit. Um, but it's been in the last generation or two, and I'm really dying to see these new clubs. They've really filled out their portfolio. From spinning clubs to low spinning clubs, you know, uh, uh, clubs for mid to high handicap players, but then addressing different, you know, kind of flight windows for uh, better players. They've really, really kind of grown into a, a full offering of golf equipment for, you know, different skill levels. I remember when the original AP1 came out, everyone looked at it like this is the most ridiculous looking golf club Titleist has ever produced because it was a, a golf club designed for the regular golfer. But that AP line 
cha- I wouldn't say change their fortune, but it changed slowly helped change the perception of what they were offering when it came to golf clubs for the consumer, because it gave people who were that say, and I don't want to say 10 as low as 10, but like I would say people from like a 15 and up gave them that opportunity to play a Titleist golf club. Whereas before the only thing before really was like a, like a DCI oversize, which relatively speaking was pretty forgiving, but to didn't offer really any technology. It was just a cast cavity back. And then you have the, the AP one, which had the red badging and was very dramatic for Titleist. Something that someone could look at it and be, a, again, be a 15 or a higher handicap for someone that maybe struggles with a little bit more around the club face, really put themselves into a category where they can be like, I can play Titleist golf clubs, right? It's AP, I think, was aspirational player, right? So if you were a serious golfer, it didn't mean you had to be a, a low handicap. It just meant that you you wanted to improve and you wanted to get better. And that was kind of the, the MO of that line, which I thought was kind of pretty cool and really did help much like the, the modern day driver there kind of changed their fortune quite a bit. But uh, now we are talking a lot of old golf clubs today. You know, we, we kind of preambled before we got on the microphones here to say, we are probably going to go off on some tangents and we've, we've definitely succeeded in doing that. Um, but before we get to our, our, our final subject, you know, speaking of old golf clubs, we are also brought to you by global golf. <laughs> man is a pro (laughs) so the pro uh with fully equipped brought to you by global golf they have their what they call their all about you program which is you select you trade in and you try when it comes to golf clubs and trading in for top dollar global golf provides comprehensive suite of products and services uh and are backed by pga professionals inside and out to help you find the best equipment for your game it is easy, it's convenient, it's cost-effective. They offer the largest selection of pre-owned golf equipment and technology on the internet. And it, again, the services are you try, which means you get to try brand new golf clubs and tech for two weeks, where and when and how you want. If you love it, you get to keep it. If not, you send it back. The you trade in, where you provide the easiest way to help golfers get to what's next and best for you by offering the best value for the gear that you have when you are trading in towards new product. And you select, which means you are getting personalized recommendations from PGA professionals to help you find the best gear for your game. And so with that, we thank Global Golf for their support. Now, last but not least, we've talked we talked about golf ball flight and, and understanding aerodynamics. We've talked about a lot of old golf clubs, wedge fitting, but with the, the heat of the summer, the one thing I want to ask you guys is, is there any particular care that people should think about their products? Or not products, sorry. Think about their golf clubs halfway through the season, whether it be you know, going through and maybe figuring out a way to clean your clubs up a little bit more or check those lies and loss or you know, where you got, maybe not where you are, Gene, so much, or actually where you are right now as well, Chris, uh, at the time being, but where you should maybe store your golf clubs because, you know, I can't imagine when it's really hot out there. I mean, I never, ever leave my clubs in the car. I always bring them inside. I always give them a good little scrubbing before or after a round of golf. Uh, Any, any care tips out there for people that might be looking at their clubs and they've been out there and they played and they've just thrown them in their garage that maybe for their next round of golf to think about. In Arizona, for sure. We see it all the time. Don't leave them in your car. Don't store them in the garage. The heat, will i mean just absolutely destroy tape and grips and epoxy bonds and i mean there's a a variety of bad things that'll happen when you subject your gear to just constant heat and the garages in arizona will get over 150 degrees in the summertime and and you have your gear out there you don't even think about it oh it's in the garage you go to the range and start taking swings next thing you know you've got heads flying off and uh grips that are literally just goo underneath it and start moving around, twisting, sliding off. I mean, we've seen all kinds of stuff. Gene, anything from you? What do you, what, is there any particular care instructions or just keep them out of your trunk? Dude, I have no idea. It's 70 <laughs> degrees every day in San yeah. Diego. What, what is weather? I don't even know what that is. So, I mean, my clubs have been in my trunk for the last 10 years. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a joke, you know, I, uh, I did a, uh, I did an event one time and the, uh, the host of the event sent me rain gear as a thank you and me being the smart ass. I said, I sent back, yeah, this what note, the hell is like, this? I'm, 
I'm like, what is this? I said, I put it on and had my kids spray me with the hose to see if it worked. But other than that, I'm not going to go play golf in the <laughs> rain. That's just stupid. Who does that? So, yeah. yeah there's I, too many I, nice I, days. I, too many nice days. Yeah, you don't need to play golf I, in the rain. Yeah. I Save the rain gear really, for Scotland. Yeah. I can't really comment on inclement weather and any sort of tips whatsoever. So, I'm out on right, that. I, I'll, I'll tee you up here, Gene. So right. what if, let's just say, you have a player that plays a forged golf club, but the majority of their practice is off of mats with range balls? Oh, they're just, they're screwed. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just screwed. I mean, you know, seriously, off of mats, first off, off of mats is just a complete waste. It, it, the only thing you're doing off of a mat is warming yourself up. And kind of if, if you're a picker, you might get a little bit of a feel, you know, directionally. But at the end of the day, you're just trying to loosen your back off of a mat. You're not trying to get, you know, because if you hit it fat, you hit it thin, it hides all of that sin. So, and then range balls are just a train wreck in and of themselves. It's just... You know, I don't even know when I go to a range, if it's a limited flight, if it's a regular range ball, you know, and I'm looking at them and I test range balls for a living. The point being, you can't judge distances. You can't judge accuracy because the, the the low quality of them and the, and the covers, you can't judge strike off of a mat. So it's just, you know, you might as well do a little bit of um, gymnastics and, you know, forget about it. I mean, anyways, yeah. No, no point whatsoever. I always save the red stripe ones. That are... Some type of reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I always save the ones that are striped from the name brands for the end for the driver, just to get try and get an idea of ball fight because they don't use a consistent like golf ball where I go. I mean, there's a there's a ball they obviously purchase, but they do purchase from some type of recycler or something, and with a big red stripe on it. So I at least try and save those for the end if uh, and line it up so you don't get all the red paint on your on your golf club. But it you know. The, the trunk thing, it almost reminds me, obviously, from golf clubs, but being Canadian, you'd, you'd go to, like, uh, I can think of, like, rec league hockey as I was getting out of my my youth sports. And some guys would leave their, their gear. They, they'd sweat in it for an hour. They'd put it in their car. They'd leave it out, and, and they'd sit in the back of their van or whatever, just, like, sedan. They'd drive it to work for a week. It would sit in freezing cold weather. And then they'd come back and they'd, they'd peel it out of their golf It's like here it cracked because of the ice that was, and then of course it would smell terrible, but, uh, oh, you yeah. know, you got to take care of your sports equipment, whatever it happens to be. Uh-huh. Well, it's funny. You talk about red stripes. My, one of my first jobs in the golf industry, and this was more of a slave labor job that my old man put me in <laughs> was, um, he would give me a paintbrush and some red paint and I would make my own, uh, range balls for the country club so i'd put them in this lathe spin them around and i just sucked at the job and i mean sometimes the stripe was this thick sometimes it was that thick i was covered in red paint at the end of it so yeah i have a little bit of trauma when it comes to those red stripes i'm not a big fan so i will tell you that we had a deal when i was a kid uh and i worked at a golf course my first job in the golf and she was like you know back shop like a lot of people uh being a teenager we had a deal with divers. So they would dive for golf balls at the golf course. They would take a lot of almost all, basically they take all the premium ones to sell off. We got to keep everything else at the golf course. That was kind of the deal. And then we, as the backshop kids, when there was spare time, we'd go to the little rain shed, which was probably like 15 by 10. You'd be in there with paint and, a, and, a, and one of those little twirly things. And oh, you'd, yeah. oh you'd yeah. Clamp the golf ball in, you'd spin it and you'd paint it. You do the next one, you do the next one. I feel like there might've been people that I work with that did it with the doors closed intentionally just because it made the day go by a little faster. But uh, yeah, definitely something that uh, I can distinctly remember from the early days in the golf industry, which is a little different than it is now. But uh, well, I'm, I'm convinced that my parents had a life insurance policy taken out on me because <laughs> they would send me out when I was 10 and 11. And this is middle of the summer, Palm Springs, California with a wedge and they'd go, we'll give you a dime for every Titleist Tour Bellata you'd find. So here I am, middle of the summer with the wedge, hacking away at these oleander bushes, trying to sticking my head in, trying to find Titleist Tour Bellatas in rattlesnake country. And I think they were like, he's back. He made it again. <laughs> so I defied the odds on that one, too. 
that's a, a yeah. Uh, I'm nice, lucky for me. I don't have to worry about rattlesnakes around here, thank goodness. Um, but uh, you know, I never had to. Well, yeah, I don't even. I, don't get me started on snakes. I don't. I don't want to even think about them. So that's yeah. We'll, we'll end I, it there. Knowing Gene, I can really understand why his parents did that. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. They had it figured out at an early age. They were like, this one's a bad seed. We must get rid of him. So, But they can't. I'm like an old cockroach, tough to take care of. So, Right on, guys. <sighs> well, you know, on, on that, not that we're trying to get rid of anybody around here. Uh, but I think we, that's look a, at the if time. You, if you, you segue <laughs> into another promotion based on that one, no. I was going to be we're brought to you by the Rapid Exterminators. If yeah. you need exterminators, we are your guys. Well, we don't have any of that yet, but uh, hey, you know, uh, maybe we'll transition to it next week, guys. I, yeah, if anybody always, from Raid is listening, yeah. <laughs> I just hung some fly traps in my garage. Although, like again, it's, it's probably like 110 degrees out there in the garage, so hopefully we'll, we'll catch a few with that. Um, but on that, uh, you know. Great chat. And we talk new stuff. We talk a lot of old stuff today, which is, is something that uh, will tend to happen in, in our scenario. But uh, as always, thanks for talking, guys. And to the audience out there, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you.